Welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast with Tony and Sorsha about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here. These are unscripted conversations about the things we care about, not the things that we're experts in. <laughs> I think our podcasts are just going to start with you and me giggling every time now, Sorsha. I'm into it. It feels like a good thing for 2020. A little giggle. A big fat fucking giggle. Yeah. I mean, at this point. I was going to ask you how you're doing, but I know that's a loaded question. But I think it's safe to say it's probably emotional and weird yeah for you emotional and weird is a hundred percent yeah so yesterday was the state elections in massachusetts where we had u.s senate race we also had a number of state rep and state house races all the Mm. way down the ballot to the you know the register of deeds water boards etc and so it was a big big election day across the state i We'll start with a good story. I yeah. so I'm Rob that. Yeah. So in 2013, a candidate who gave me my start, my first start in US politics, Rob Consolvo, who was running for mayor at the time, was formerly a city councillor in, in Boston, ran yesterday for state rep and won. Amazing. And that is just his dedication to his community and the work he has done in that whole area from city councillor to working in the housing authority under the mayor. Like he, to me, personifies someone who is above party lines and is able to, you know, Mm. even though he lost the mayoral election, still went and worked for the mayor and has a fantastic relationship with the current mayor of Boston. And I reconnected with him when I moved back to Massachusetts a couple of years ago now. And he wasn't running for anything at the time. We got reconnected and then, you know, nine months ago I saw that he was running for state rep and I literally was like, oh my God, what can I do? That's amazing. Uh, it's, and in my current role, obviously where I work, it's not it's not the easiest of things yeah. to, you know, I can't financially contribute all those different yeah. things. He's like, what can I do? And here are the 25 caveats of things I can't do. So actually, let me tell you what I can do for you. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to come and hold a sign, right? Like I can passively participate in that way but it was just so so special I got to go and hang out with kind of the old campaign crew and him and his family a few weeks back we did a a standout which I used to back in my campaign days hate standouts and for those of you listening a standout is quite literally we stand on the side of the road with a sign with that person's name and so like back in my campaign days I was like standouts are useless signs don't vote like you have to knock doors, but here we are, 2020. You're not allowed to knock doors. Notice how you went very Irish there all of a sudden. Did I? <laughs> yeah. You went, yes, yes, you did. You went full on Irish mama bear. No, you cannot. I'm not even gonna attempt to do an Irish accent. <laughs> yeah, I feel that feels safe. Let's not let's not do that. Let's <laughs> not do the things I cannot do, which I cannot do. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah, so Rob won, it was you know, amazing, amazing, which just gives me so much joy because that was my first campaign. And for those of you listening who've worked on campaigns, there is nothing to describe the heartbreak Mm. of losing an election 
when you have literally become a family. They are the only people you've seen for the last three months. You've seen them every single day for sometimes 20 hours a day. You've eaten, you've slept, you've not showered with these people. Yeah. And it is blood, sweat and tears. And then to lose. I I will never, ever forget it. I remember it felt like the whole ground went from under me. I FaceTimed my mom and was just hysterically crying that Rob had lost. I just did. I didn't know what to do or where Mm. to go. Like the sense of purpose also just swept from underneath you. And you're like, well, now what? That's it. Now what? And and the reason I, I give so much credit to, to Rob and the team is for me, the now what then led me to the career I have today. And, you know, I was able to jump on another campaign that was a referendum. And that was from the opportunities that I got from Rob's campaign, moving up into the deputy field director role. And it allowed me to just like flex my muscles like that in a way that I wouldn't have if, have if I was on a different campaign at the time, yeah. because Rob's campaign was like, very scrappy very like we're figuring this out on the fly we're just like we're going for it health or leather it wasn't you know like a big democratic machine campaign where like 15 people were going for that same job and it wasn't like that so it was very very special um to you there it's interesting how I kind of wish I really do wish this that more startups who want to be lean and who want to be I don't know, creative and innovative with what they have at their disposal actually turned and looked at campaigns. And and I, it's bizarre thinking that something so new and innovative like tech startups should look at something so archaic. But there is something about how a campaign can be run really lean and scrappy and you get the best out of a team. Even from the culture to the tools to how you run it, there's just something there. I know it's like, like that's a whole other topic for another day. There is absolutely something there. And Tony, I think the thing I've always thought about with that is how do you replicate the passion that you get on a campaign? Because mm. for me, the passion I get from the campaign is I believe in that candidate. Yeah. When I'm on doors, when I'm speaking to people, when I'm drafting press releases, I believe what I'm writing. I truly believe it. And we've talked about this previously or, uh, in a professional setting. Yeah. How much of the Kool-Aid can you drink before it becomes weird? Right. Like, whereas in a campaign, you have to drink the Kool-Aid. You have to because you're the ambassador for that candidate. And if you don't do that, he will lose or she will lose. Yeah. I think with the the, the piece that's slightly different for me, and I've been thinking about the Kool-Aid thing a lot recently, but in a startup for me, when you when it starts getting weird, the Kool-Aid or when you start to question, wait, am I drinking too much of the Kool-Aid? What am I missing? Am I missing the practical piece? It's when the pie in the sky vision doesn't align with the tactical things that you need to get done and it's where again like the mission and the business model kind of start not aligning which I don't think you'd ever get on a campaign ah no you will you would in what way think of it in the flip-flopping so when I started working with this candidate they believed in women's rights okay Fast forward four years, they've been in office and they actually voted to defund Planned Parenthood and to remove hospitals and to bleh. And so this lofty vision of like, I am this amazing person yeah. for change. If that doesn't line up with your elect- with your record, like that's where you start to see this like friction of, oh, but I really believe in them. I can't like, oh, but they were, but, but wait, is- look at their record. Look at what they voted on. Interesting. Okay. So, God, so there's even more to learn from this space, yeah. 
But and also, Tony, that brings up for me the transparency piece because it takes in a seriously invested person to go in and do that work yeah. to find out about these people that they are voting for, the education of what does that individual do on a day-to-day basis. That's not a thing that campaigns do well. Whereas I think that is a thing that companies and corporations do well, because if they don't, their product doesn't they sell. Lose the trust. When you were speaking that, I thought you were actually going to talk, well, this is fascinating. I thought you were going to talk at this from an individual citizen perspective. And I was going to say, yeah, we're shit citizens because we don't do the research when we use products. And then we like shock and awe, surprised that they sell your data. I was like, well, it's, you had everything at your disposal to do that research. And it's the same with a candidate when you do shock and awe. I didn't know they will that's the whole point like you've got to do your research in both in both aspects but i hadn't thought of it through the through the lens of the responsibility and the transparency actually coming from the company and the and from the candidate like um so yeah so that's that's rob consolvo One question about rob before you move on yeah what what is it about him that's not personal to you that made him such a good candidate I'll I'll share it through a door conversation that I had. So I was knocking doors in Roslindale, which is a neighborhood in Boston in 2013. Yeah. And I knocked on the door of this woman's house and the normal, hey, how are you? I'm so sure I'm a volunteer with Rob Consolvo's campaign, blah, 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 blah. And she, as soon as she heard Rob Consolvo, she was like, oh my God, I love Rob Consolvo. Like anything I can do, let me know. And I was like, absolutely. Would you mind telling me why you love him? And she was like, if it's okay with you, can can we walk over here? So we come out of her like front driveway and take a left. And then you can see that construction has literally just been done on this yeah. road. She was like, this pothole here has taken two of my grandchildren down. I have personally fallen into it and it's popped a car tire of mine. I have been asking everyone at City Hall mm. in the whatever it is, public works department to fix this. I finally got a hold of our city councillor, then now running for mayor, or was running for mayor, and he fixed it within two weeks. He came, he spoke to me, we had coffee, and he actually cared about the pothole that was on my road that no one at Public Works cared about. That, to me, was Rob. And he did that with me. Like I was fresh off the boat when I started working for Rob's campaign. I had just moved yeah. here. I was welcomed into his family. I was invited to Thanksgiving. I was invited to Halloween. Like, I was welcomed into that family as a person. It wasn't just a, like, I show up at campaign headquarters and do data entry and it was, you're a part of the family. Yeah, like, his sister reached out to me when Rob was running for state rep. Like, and Lisa, her name's Lisa Consalvo, amazing woman. Like, just, he is someone who truly cares. Okay, one other question for you, because this happened to me last night. I just actually, just after which I rang you after this interaction. So this interaction is not going to come as a surprise, but one of the candidates running for mayor for Berkeley, where I live in San Francisco, knocked on my door. And obviously I was like, I'm so sorry, I'd love to help, but I like I can't vote in this country, which is a whole other thing that we'll talk about one day. But how do you decide who gets the knock on the door from the actual candidate versus like what you're doing, um, representatives of the candidate? How is that? And I know that's like a petty, it's not a petty thing to ask, but it's such a, such a minor detail but I was just like it was funny because I went on a rant to him saying I got I just had a conversation about with a friend about how we can't vote and how it's stupid and we live here and we pay taxes here and he was like uh calm down here's my card um if you've got other questions he didn't actually say calm down I should give him more credit than that but it was clear in his eyes that he's like oh crazy woman alert but that was just because I can't <laughs> the call with you 
but listening to you knock on doors, I was like curious, like how is like can you share like how that decision is made of who gets what? Yeah, that's strategic. Like it will really depend on the campaign's priority. So for example, if the campaign is grounded and focused on newly registered yeah. voters, the candidate will be given a a walk packet that are newly registered voters in each precinct, for example. If they're focused on, you know, endorsements, receiving endorsements, the candidate will intentionally go into precincts that have opinion leaders that live in those precincts. And it also depends on the candidate's preference. I've worked with candidates who will do an hour on a Saturday and that's it. Like every week they'll do an hour on a Saturday and you just tell them where to go. I've worked with candidates who want to be at every Canvas launch from five to seven every single day of the week. I've also had candidates who only want to do call time. They only want to phone back. They don't want to walk. They don't want to be out there. It just, it really is a preference thing, but that strategy should be coming from the field director and the campaign manager as it pertains to where the candidate's visibility needs to be. There's also a thing to think about of who's your best asset. Is the candidate themselves the best asset or is it the candidate's partner? Is it the candidate's children? Is it people who are in the community? Like who's the best asset? Yeah. It does. Always does. Like Rob's wife, fantastic woman who would go and knock doors. So that's your good story. It's a lovely yeah. story. Um, I'm scared of like, what's the bad <laughs> No, Rob's amazing. Congratulations, Mr. Rob Consolvo. I'm so excited what you're going to do in the, in the State House. U.S. Senate. Ed Markey ran against, or Joe Kennedy ran against Ed Markey. Ed Markey is the incumbent. Ed Markey has been in office since before Joe Kennedy was born. Right. Joe Kennedy is 39. So, Ed Markey, I do not think he is a bad senator in any way, shape, or form. He's extremely progressive. He has done very well in his time in office as it pertains to aligning with beliefs that I have personally. He is a Democrat. We are in Massachusetts. And Joe Kennedy decided that he was going to take a run at this U.S. Senate race. Some people say that, you know, Ed Markey has one more term left in him. This would be the last term. And Joe Kennedy made a strategic decision that it would be easier to outseat Ed Markey than it would be to go in an open race where you'd have the likes of Maura Healey and Ayanna Pressley potentially stepping up to be U.S. senator. So that's, you know, a theory that people had. My personal belief on that is that he wanted to be a senator and he believed that he was the right person for the job. And so he stepped up and he said, I'm going to put my hand in the race. It was a tough campaign. It was like from the sidelines. I did dear friends of mine were running that campaign and were, were in the mix. And it got really negative and really dark towards the end. I remember, I think I want to say it was the fourth or fifth debate. There's a whole segment where Marky is just shouting at Joe Kennedy saying, tell your father to stop putting up attack ads. Tell your father to stop putting up attack ads. Tell your father to get rid of his money out of the race. Tell your like this constant battering of the Kennedy legacy. And what happened in a very similar way, and y'all who have listened to other episodes here will know how I feel about the Bernie bros, but the same construct of like the Bernie bros happened with Ed Markey. And so there was just this like, vicious like the kennedys are aristocrats the kennedys are the worst like get rid of this trust fund like just this intense negativity 
for someone who's a public public servant, yeah. quite like quite literally is a public servant. So it's not like he is a multi-millionaire CEO of some company that he just spun up with his father's money. No, he's actually a public servant and a very good one, in my opinion. And so it got very vicious. And there was like a lot of attacks about the Kennedy family as a whole. And we don't need to go back in history. We need to move forward with a fresh eyes, blah, blah, blah. And AOC then came and endorsed Ed Markey as the co-author of the Green New Deal, which gave a massive burst of energy to, in particular, youth demographics. I have not analysed the election results yeah. yet in terms of like demographics, where where he pulled in most of his, excuse me, where he pulled most in most of his votes in from. Pelosi then came out and endorsed. Joe Kennedy, which was a, is a big taboo in the grand scheme of Democratic Party, the infrastructure of which you do not endorse, like you do not yeah. go against the incumbent that is a part of your party, all that jazz, which we saw, you know, yeah. we saw Ayanna Presley actually take out the incumbent when she ran for Congress back in 2018. So there's precedent for it, but it just was, just wasn't his time. But similar to what I was saying earlier about the loss I experienced with Rob, like, I didn't, I wasn't able to give blood, sweat and tears to that campaign, but I watched people who I love give that. And so last night it was just gut-wrenching and, you know, watching, I, watching people's concession speeches is the worst thing because you can see the like lump in their throat from where they just and you're wondering cry what's next. and yeah. they have to stand up and they have to say thank you and they have to say and be inspirational to the thousands of people that have donated and knocked doors and phone banked and lit dropped. And they have to, right? You are, as a candidate in that moment, you're the inspiration. And they're just as devastated as you are. Yeah. And it's good leadership. It's actual leadership to be able to stand up and say, we lost. I've always had that thing with concession speeches because a good concession speech does point the finger, shine a light, however you want to frame it, on a great leader. But it's also a little too late to discover that, oh, shit, that was probably the leader that we needed. And the amount of times that you see people go back and look at, oh, we should have known, look at that great concession speech. You're like, oh, why did it have to come to that? There were so many tweets that was like, best speech of the campaign. Like, he's, def he's definitely not leaving politics. And it's like, of course he's not leaving politics. There's just something for me that really annoys me about the we'll call it, I'll call it the like the extreme progressive wing of the Democratic Party that has a problem with someone who has a, the and like the, what did we call it? The old guard, the Clintons, right? Like the yeah. Kennedys. These are like the old guard. These, we need new, we need, a, just because they have a name, it doesn't, yeah. don't bucket them together. Don't just decide, like it's yeah. the same view that you are fighting against on the right. What you are doing to yeah. people or how I feel you are attacking people in within the, the... And that's the other thing. Joe Kennedy and Ed Markey, when you put like pen to paper on where they, where they vote, it pretty identically lines up. Yeah. Like, yeah. So they're just, they're finding this anchor to attack on. You know, you aren't, you aren't a part of this progressive era, even though you are 
a 39-year-old man who has also endorsed the Green New Deal, who has also <laughs> engaged in That's progressive it. policy. And with the Bernie, with the Bernie bros, I remember when you were explaining this last time, the irony is like wanting this this such visceral hatred against the old guard. And you're like, but your candidate is nearly 80. Like, where's, I don't, like, there's something there that it just, there's, I don't know, the the old, there's something about the definition of the old guard that isn't actually all negative. Like, there's there's a legacy. Legacy is a good thing sometimes. And, and it shouldn't be, you know, which one do you want? Do you want the legacy or do you want the guy who's new to it all, but not really, but feels like a breath of fresh air? You know what it is? It's like the immediate... Like the immediate shot of dopamine of feeling good because there's something new that's right, but but you get so excited about it that you don't actually look any further and wonder, wait, is this actually anything new or is it just a new packaging? It's the shiny silver, like it, it, and it's this this collective hate against like we we must fight for better, which I don't disagree with. We should fight for better. We should stand up for more. Yes. But when you are creating a narrative that is to diminish someone who actually has very similar accomplishments as it comes when it comes to legislation passed, what is the what's the end goal in that? What's the win in that? Like I received a letter, a letter, well, an email today. Pigeon carrier popped in, so I got an email today from our revolution. And I'll actually read the title to you because it Ed Markey crushed Joe Kennedy is the subject line. Yeah, but that's like sports. That's where politics for me, I have hard times with it because it's it's like the sport, you know, there has to be a winner, has to be a loser. You have to feel you have to pity the loser because he got crushed. You know, this- with the, the the opening line of that, Tony, is the entire corporate establishment lined up behind Joe Kennedy the third because they wanted to punish Senator Markey for having the moral courage to stand with AOC in the urgent fight for a Green New Deal. Is that accurate? Is any of that accurate, factually? The the entire corporate establishment lined up? Maybe. What's your definition of a corporate establishment? Is it Nancy Pelosi? Nancy Pelosi is the corporate... You know, like that, maybe it's true. <laughs> But I don't think it's because they are mad at Marky for having a relationship with AOC. Like it just—it's the inflammatory. But like, oh, how do we how do we get people to rally I about? I feel like this? that's that environment in politics has been the case since 2016 and and probably before, but has just like it's rampant. Like my my husband asked me the other day, of, and I know we want to do an episode on this, but and we will. But my husband asked me the other day of how can you explain that they get away with lying, blatantly lying all the time. All the time is probably exaggerating, but, you know, so often, like this would never, ever be possible in Europe. It just wouldn't be a thing. How is it that, who's who's fact-checking this? How are they able to, you know? Journalists like Tucker Carlson, for those of you listening, Google that as a bad example of journalism. And they get away with it. But that's how they get away. Because the media themselves, the, the mainstream, we'll call it media themselves, are doing their own version of inflammatory. And again, 
it's all, and that's where we, we oh, most of our conversations end up in it. The whole system is actually somewhat broken. The business models don't align. They make money by doing inflammatory statements, whether you argue or not that different, you know, and they do different media outlets have different business models. But at the end of the day, they get eyeballs on web pages or on TV or wherever if it's entertaining. And that's what kills me. We talked about this just last week about what is news and what is opinion. Tucker Carlson, go and have your own talk show. But you should probably not be delivering the news. Because there, there's no from, and just so y'all know, I personally flip back and forth between CNN and Fox. And it's less for me about actually gathering the news than it is about understanding what buzzwords, what messaging, what key targeting both of those cable networks are doing to their target audience. If I want news from the TV, I will get my local news. I will do Channel 7, WGBH. That's where I will actually watch news. But it neither, neither CNN or Fox, in my opinion, do a good job of reporting the news. It is very much so. What's, what's like, oh, Donald Trump again denied systematic racism was the whatever that thing is. That goes across the bottom. No idea. The breaking news, like the thing that goes across. I don't know what you call it. <laughs> that was on CNN, and then on on Fox News, it was like Sleepy Joe <laughs> tweet. Yeah. D- like that, Sleepy Joe is breaking news. That's how you're going to speak about the former vice president of the United States. Both of them. They were both inflammatory statements that are. Oh my God! The president's denied systematic racism again. And that is being derived from a speech that he made in Kenosha, right? Like, I yeah. do not disagree. I'm sure he, he is doing that 100%. Sleepy Joe, uh, like, I it just also can't. takes to your point of what you were explaining that you're doing here with the C- flipping from CNN to Fox between the two, not to get the news coverage, but to get an understanding of how it's portrayed and, you know, the buzzwords and all of that. Also takes an incredible willpower to do that without smashing your TV, not because you disagree with it, but because you realize just how much of a bubble you live in and what it takes to burst that bubble. I kind I always go back of one of the things that I wish I'd done a better job at during the, the 2016 Brexit referendum is like open up my eyes a little bit more and try and, and spend more time, which is ironic since I was constantly on the phone with both sides of those campaigns. But we didn't talk politics, we talked technology, which is a whole other thing in itself. But I kind of wish that I'd open my eyes a little bit more and burst those bubbles a little bit more because around me it was, of course this is never going to happen. Of course the UK would be idiots to try and, you know, leave the European Union. It makes no sense. No one's going to vote for this. And you sort of go into that rhetoric of, oh, and you're starting to see that with the selections again. I see it in Europe of like, of course, Donald Trump's never going to win. Well, we said that in 2016. You're just like, we've got to, we've got to do what you're doing. We've got to flip and go into the uncomfortable spaces where we fundamentally disagree to get an understanding. And you you have to listen because the amount of times, I will not name names, but like in my close immediate family in the US that I've been there and Fox News will be on and I will flip it to CNN and it will be an act like an anger of fake news oh of course they're talking about Donald Trump oh they're talking about Pelosi now but like it it is just this like immediate anger and I come if we flip it back to Fox News it's like see Ingrid Angle is talking about this in the best way right like enter in <laughs> Tucker Carlson said last week that 
Donald Trump actually yeah. helps people go to church. CNN saying I can't go to church, right? Like it is, you're not, it's actually not helpful if you don't listen to it. If you just take it as, oh, that that's the other side. That's where for me it becomes actually, and it's worse. Oh, this is going to maybe be the most naive, stupid thing I've ever said on a podcast. Maybe not, maybe. Since when is factual news political? You know what I mean? Like just how masks, wearing a mask mm. has become a fucking political, excuse my language, but a political statement in America. And I'm just like, it, it's about doing the right thing and keeping your germs to yourself and potentially saving lives. There's, there's nothing political in my opinion about that. But there's something there. Of, did, and I say this in the way that I know that when I was a kid, dad watched the news, you know, every night systematically, 8, 8 p.m., turned it on, listened to it. And he had his favorite channels. And I know there are some channels that are more that left leaning, right leaning, but it's gotten to a point right now where it's viscerally political in the worst possible way, that it's not even about getting the information. It's about feeling good about the information that you're getting. And it's reinforcing the stereotypes that you have and the beliefs that you have versus actually giving you the latest updates. Does that make sense? It does. And my experience in Europe was that there wasn't a right or left side. There was BBC. But those Channel 4, there's other, you know, those other outlets. Oh, totally. No, you're right. But there was, it wasn't but like CNN, it. Was politicized Fox, as yep. <laughs> and then, and nothing. <laughs> and like, you know, yes, you've got ABC. Is it ABC? American Broadcast Channel. Yeah. You've got ABC and PBS that are supposed to be like in the neutral. Yeah. But then Rachel Maller is on. You know what I mean? So it's like, the the individual profile of the anchor is more apparent yeah. than the news they are reporting on, which is wild. Whereas, like, for me growing up, it was BBC and RTE News. And you didn't... It's interesting that you say that because the only person that I know, the only TV anchor's name that I know about, that I know by name... TV anchor's name that I know. Let's just stop at that. From my childhood was Claire Chazelle, just because she was a and she was a French um, TV news anchor, and she was absolutely brilliant. But you didn't want to get your news from a certain person. It was from the broadcast or which channel, because it was less. They were supposed to be non-existent. It was an interesting one where they're. It's not about you. It's about the words that you're delivering. You're just basically like weirdly like mod models today you're, you're the vehicle for the clothes so just can you just walk the runway what well, we shouldn't even realize that you're there and there's pros and cons to that and i think it's the same there's pros and cons with being a good news anchor but you're right there's something there about just how much of them they're putting on the table and i can't remember the guy's name from the bbc which shows enough about that but he i loved him he was scottish kind of chubby had gray hair I, and i you know he'd probably be the seven o'clock news every night but I don't know who he is because he wasn't making inflammatory statements. He doesn't have a following and a cult following like, yeah. No, he doesn't. And it's the same with journalists. And again, I go back to the conversation. It's funny how it's actually tied very much to the conversation we had last week of the best jobs for journalists, so the, for, the, for the journalists who have huge followings. The way you get huge followings is by being really opinionated and not being actually always about the facts, but about your opinions. Social media loves strong opinions, so you grow your following, and hence it's great for your career because you probably get a great job. Where it becomes fascinating is what's the are, are these media outlets and media companies equipped to deal with the consequences of when it goes a little bit 
above to becomes too much. But where are you drawing the line of what is too much when you look at Tucker Carlson? Like, I'm curious, what is the thing that Tucker Carlson is going to say where they go, okay, that's too much for us, even for us? I don't think there is because they don't have, and this goes back to a conversation we'd had whenever, about actually, last night, the, the Brussels Effect book. Yeah. The Brussels Effect book, which I still have not read, and we will put it in the in the blog for everyone listening, but the code of conduct, that construct yeah. of like, this is, these are our boundaries, doesn't exist because they, or how I interpret it, in particular for Fox News, and probably will be true for CNN. There, are, there isn't like this code of conduct because they are fighting this freedom of speech construct. We are free to tell you what we believe to be the truth, which in my opinion is not the responsibility of media. And then I think there is also a question to be asked of what's the difference between media and journalists? Is there one? Yeah. Should there be one? Like journalist integrity? Has that gone? Oh, and I, I, did you ever watch the newsroom? Yes, loved. It, yeah. Oh. But it's funny because what we're advocating for is the complete opposite, where he was, he ended up, I mean, a newsroom written by, what's his name? Brilliant, brilliant TV writer, uh, Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin, who is just phenomenal with his his quick one-liners. And, and it, it follows basically a news anchor who is Republican, but gets really, really pissed off when people say that they have to be either Democrat or Republican. He's like, can we talk about the ideas and the values you have versus your left or right, which I first of all love. But he was just a news anchor that just like, again, just the vehicle for spewing the news and he was like, whatever. And then he became opinionated of, but opinionated about truth when there's a difference mm-hmm. there. And that's where I was like, oh, you're brilliant. But yeah, there's something there about what kind of opinionated. And we talked about that with, with the company that you still work for and I used to work for. It's We're not neutral. We're not neutral in that we don't fundamentally care of who we sell the software to. We actually deeply opinionated about how we sell it, our place in the world and society. And I think there's something there that has to happen with, I don't know, it's like it's like maturing. It's like, okay, you've done the childish thing of everyone's following you because you've got a cult following and you're opinionated and you're spewing your things left, right and center to get attention. I can't wait for everyone starting to be opinionated about the things that they should be opinionated about, about what's the role of media, what's my role as a journalist that I'll get opinionated about. Can't wait for that. Do we have time to wait? <laughs> right? Like. I'm so fascinated, you know, fast forward at 10 years, what will the history books write about 2020? What, how will you teach as a history teacher the President of the United States behavior? Yeah. The RNC display that we witnessed with taxpayers' money for a political event. How do you get, he refuses to take a salary because he's so great, yet he's spent I, where did I read this in the? It must have been Politico. He has spent already fifteen times what the salary would be each take? year. Wow, each year. So they did the maths. It worked out that he would need to continue to be in office for three hundred and forty-six years to pay off what he has given back by not taking a salary. It just and and look. Sosha, it's, I don't think we've got the time for sure. I think we're not learning from the past either. Again, I just like, I look at it and go, 
oh yeah, we're we're reliving 2016 again of whoops, maybe we called too early that, you know, Donald Trump is lagging behind massively. That's going to shift soon and it already is. We're reliving 1939 in some aspects. Talk to me about that and then we should close out. But The yeah. amount of times I have seen people sharing experiences with a correlation between what was happening in Nazi Germany as it pertains to putting in police forces mm -hmm. in specific areas of Germany that had predominant large groupings of Jewish people to then say there was trouble being caused in that area because Jewish people lived in that yeah. area. And to see that happen again in this country. That doesn't surprise me because America, as much as I love being here, knows very little about the rest of the world, but also has learned very little about what's happened in World War One, World War Two. They again and and I know very little about what happened historically in the United States, but there's something there about learning not just from ourselves and our own history, of learning from the rest of the world's history of not repeating. There's something about not repeating our own mistakes, but there's also something there about not repeating other people's mistakes and learning from those. That went dark. It did. I feel like it did, but it, but was, it was good. good. And I like this. I think this is what this season is going to be about. And it has to be about is these bizarre underlining conversations around politics. We're definitely not going to be bringing you the news. Ill-equipped for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Too opinionated for that. Hey, maybe we've actually got a good anchor show in our future, Tony. Good to be <laughs> This was fun. Yes. Well, always. See you soon. We made it. We're at the end of our lovely conversation. And thank you so much for being with us throughout it. Please continue to follow along on our journey and share it with your friends and family through Instagram, Unapologetic Women Podcast, or on our website, unapologeticwomen.co. 